What does God look like? Is this something you've ever asked yourself before? Does the Bible give any kind of answer? You might be surprised to find out that it gives several, and you'll hear all about them today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I'm six foot three, and that's a few inches above average. And I'm being tall can have its advantages and its disadvantages. I butt my head on a lot of things, and old ladies are always coming up to me at the store and asking me to grab them an item off the top shelf. But there's also some advantages to being tall. Uh, For example, I can reach those items. And also, I might be able to get elected president. That's right, there's this weird psychological effect in society that we ascribe leadership ability to height. This is not a logical thing. This is not a rational thing. It's just that the taller someone is, the more easily that we can think of them or prefer them as a leader. It's not fair. It's not, like, like I said, it's not logical. But it is a well-documented psychological effect, and it goes back through all of time. Actually, if you remember, the people thought King Saul would be a great leader simply because of how tall he was. And then uh, little David, of course, in that story, he was an afterthought. Nobody even in his own family thought that he was king material. In fact, he was the runt of the family. Now, here's something else, and this is kind of depressing. Did you know that ever since the invention of television... The taller candidate for president usually wins the race in November. When someone is taller, there's just this deep down bias inside of people, a mental bias, and people think, therefore, they're more likely to be leadership material. Now, prior to the invention of television, the height of a candidate really had no bearing on their electability because people often didn't even know what presidential candidates looked like. So there wasn't a chance to trigger that mental bias. Uh, But since the invention of television, I think the first debate that was broadcast on tv it was 1952 ever since then um people almost always vote or america almost always chooses the taller of the two candidates now just think in the early days of america people used to vote for candidates for office and they didn't even know what those people looked like because back then there wasn't video and newspapers didn't usually feature photographs it was very rare especially the earlier you go so people often voted back then based on descriptions of the candidates and and usually without regard to their looks at all. You know, we all know what Abraham Lincoln looks like today. We can conjure up an image of Abraham Lincoln in our minds just by saying the words Abraham Lincoln. But if you think about it, the Americans who lived in Lincoln's day, they might very well have had no mental picture to go off of at all. Um, actually, back when I was in college, and this was 10 or 15 years ago, but I remember there was a Muslim student in our college, in, our, in my classes with me, and he was over here in America to study, but he was actually, he was from someplace out in Africa. And I remember um, while he was over here, during the semester at some point, he received word that he had been married, <laughs> that back home, his family had arranged a marriage for him. Uh, by, by, that's how they did it in their country. They had just done it through their laws, even though he wasn't even there. And so they had arranged this marriage for him, even though he wasn't home to make his vows. And so by, by his culture, he was married. 
And I was like, have you have you even met this girl before that he's married to? And he said that he had whenever they were the children, but that he had never even seen her as an adult. He did not even know what she looked like. That just blew me away <laughs> back then. I can't remember what country he was from, but just blew me away that he's married to this girl. And he didn't even know what his what his own wife looked like. And it blows me away even that people used to vote for a president and they had no idea what the, the presidential candidates even looked like. So in that vein today, I just want you to ask yourself a question. What does God look like? Now, maybe you've never thought about that before. Or maybe you say, well, it doesn't matter. Nobody really knows. I'd say there are a couple people who could answer that question. Um, Adam and Eve. Because if you remember from the Bible, when Adam and Eve walked on this earth, God walked with them. And can you imagine that? Uh, Adam and Eve, they had this privilege that we won't, that we can't even enjoy until we get to heaven. That they walked right alongside God. You could ask them what God looked like, and they could describe him to you. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So if you've heard that story, and I imagine you have, it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's when sin entered the world. Adam and Eve had started off with this privilege of being able to walk with God. They walked right alongside God. But then they ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened and uh, they they be, had shame. And so when God comes walking nearby, they go and hide. Now is there, for the first time, there's this separation between God and man that wasn't there before. Adam and Eve hid from God. There was fear. And God couldn't hang out with them anymore. And now, ever since then, the future generations, they're not going to have that face-to-face, -face, intimate contact with God that Adam and Eve were able to enjoy. So God evicted them from the garden, Genesis 3.24. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God put an angel with a sword to keep man out of the Garden of Eden. And one thing you want to understand is that that was really for mankind's benefit. Because now that mankind is sinful, mankind can't be in contact with God anymore. Anytime sinful man would try to come into God's presence, that would result in man being fried. I just imagine it like a bug in a bug zapper, if you've ever seen that. Man can't come and interact with God like they used to in the garden. If man tried to get that close to God now, they'd be fried. And so now there's this angel there to guard the way, guarding the way between the presence of God and sinful man, a cherubim. So now man is scared of God. And all through the Old Testament, the, the angels are these intermediaries between God and man. And that's why they're often delivering messages. They're, they're a go-between. And so the Israelites believed that the angels were sort of like guardians of God's presence. If an angel showed up, you better be careful because the presence of God might be right behind them, just like here at the at the Garden of Eden. And I know cherubim angels are slightly different beings, but um, it's the same concept because they're these spiritual creatures 
Okay. Whether you, what, regardless of the vocabulary you want to use to describe them, the cherubim represent the guardians of God's presence. And now man has to be scared of God's presence. And so man is also scared of the angels. They're scared of the cherubim. You see it all through the scriptures. So what does God look like? Well, we don't know because he's behind the cherubim. Generations go by, generation after generation. If Adam and Eve had passed a description of God down to their kids, it's been long gone by now. Nobody knows what God looks like anymore. Until Genesis 15. And this is thousands of years later after Genesis 3. In Genesis 15, God has a conversation with a guy that you probably know named Abraham. And God knew Abraham pretty well. If, if we asked Abraham what God looks like, we might get some kind of answer because God came down to make a covenant with Abraham. And as was customary in ancient covenants, they chopped some animals in half. This was a thing that they did back then. In ancient covenants, they cut these animals in half and the people would pass between them. And they'd say, if I were to break my covenant, then let me be as one of these animals. This was a customary thing that they did. And God and Abraham make a covenant in Genesis 15. It says in verse 9, So he, which is God, said to him, which is Abraham, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. So this is what they did back then. It's kind of gross, kind of bloody. I mean, when I when, when I was a kid, we had cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm not sure if actually this is much better, but uh, pretty gruesome. So we continue. I'll go on with verse 10 here. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Skipping to verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and then it goes on. So so God appears right here, but God doesn't appear in a personal form like he did with Adam and Eve. He appears here as a smoking oven. Or a burning torch. Some translations will say a pot with fire or as a burning furnace. So whatever God was right here, I mean, it was something obviously that was something hot. Okay, maybe something kind of threatening. If you asked Abraham what God looked like, he'd probably give you some answer like a burning oven or furnace or something like that. Let's ask someone else who knew God what, what God looks like. Let's ask Moses. Moses met with God a few times. The first time was as a burning bush. But I think we all understand, you know, it wasn't actually God being a bush. God was speaking through a bush. The miracle thing, the miraculous thing was that this bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. Um, but if you were to ask Moses what God looks like, uh, he's probably not thinking God looks like an actual bush. He's probably wondering if God was the fire inside the bush. Like, was the fire God? Does God look like fire? Sounds kind of like Abraham's experience. Well, later on, the Bible says Moses got to meet with God face to face. And it mentions this in Exodus 33. This is like right around the time they had built that golden calf. But in Exodus 33, verse 9, And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. 
and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. So, we get another description of God here. God is a cloud now. And the cloud tells Moses, I can't travel with your people anymore, because my holiness will burn them up. They'll be fried. It's safer for them if I'm not here, because you can't handle the cloud. And then Moses replies, it's one of... what I'd say is one of the boldest statements of the Bible. <laughs> God, or Moses says, no, God, they're not my people. These are your people. And we can't go on without you. And God respects that boldness right there. God says, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so Moses saw God as a cloud. And that's a little bit nicer than fire. I mean, clouds, they're fluffy, right? I don't, I don't think I'd be so afraid to talk to a cloud. But also Moses knew that God was more than a cloud. Here's what Moses said that that I think this makes Moses so awesome is that Moses wanted everything that was God. He didn't just want the fluffy side of God. I mean, he wanted the fierceness of God. And how often does anyone say that? I mean, how often does anyone say, God, I don't want just the comfortable parts of you. I don't want just the parts that are warm and fuzzy and give me goosebumps. But God, I want all of you. So Moses said, God, you know, I don't I don't want to just follow the parts of the Bible that make sense to me in my culture. I want to follow everything that God says. I want to follow everything that the Bible says. Even stuff that doesn't make sense to me. Even stuff that's hard. And in Exodus 33, 18, he says, please show me your glory. By the way, I think this means Moses was Pentecostal. And then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me that you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses couldn't see God. God says, I'm going to have to put my hand on you to protect you from myself. And honestly, I kind of see the gospel on that, that we can't stand in the presence of God. So God said at the cross that he would cover us with himself. See, we're, if we tried to come into God's presence, as every man's going to do whenever they pass from this earth, you can't stand in God's presence. If you're a wicked, sinful man, you'd be fried. Like a bug in a bug zapper. Zoom. God says, because you are sinful, you can't interact with me. But Jesus came down to this earth and died on the cross so that we could be protected from God himself. God says, Moses, I have to put my hand on you to protect you from myself. That's what he did with Jesus. He's putting his hand on us and protecting us from himself. I wish I knew what Moses saw said he saw God passing away. What I mean, whatever Moses saw, it said when Moses came down off the mountain that his face was just glowing from the reflection of having seen God. Now, maybe you're wondering, did anyone else see God? Well, believe it or not, all of Israel did. Every day, when they were journeying through the wilderness and 
This happens, of course, through the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. From evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day in the appearance of fire by night. So ever since the separation of God and man, God has been all kinds of different things, a boiling pot and a torch, sometimes a fire inside a bush. Sometimes he looks like a cloud, sometimes a pillar of fire. So if you're an ancient Israelite, say, reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament, and you said, well, exactly what is God? Well, put yourself in their shoes. God's not showing up as anything you'd expect. (laughs) He's showing up as something different every single time he shows up. Now, maybe we could say we got him kind of nailed down. He clearly likes fire. He likes the cloud thing. He likes being up on mountains with people. So that seems like pretty good precedent there to understand exactly who or what God is. When you see talking fire or a cloud or some weather pattern up on a mountain, that's that's got to be God then, right? If you were Elijah, that's exactly what you would think. Elijah was a prophet of God. He knew his Bible well. He could tell you God shows up as a fire, a cloud, some kind of weather phenomenon. That signifies the presence of God. And then God takes Elijah up on this mountain. It says in 1 Kings 19.11, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Now, if you're Elijah, if you're me, I'm saying this is definitely God. Because we're up on the mountain. There's a tornado going on. It's definitely scary. So it's got to be God. But the verse continues, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Well, an earthquake is something new, but hey, that's got to be God. I mean, that's something big right there. That's got to be God, right? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Well, (laughs) the wildfire, that has got to be the Lord because the Lord likes fire. I mean, he showed up in, in all these other fires before in history. I think we could demonstrate from the Bible that God is in fires. But the Lord was not in the fire. So if I'm Elijah, I say, I think God's messing with me. (laughs) I thought thought the Bible was here to help us to recognize God, to help us to know whenever it is that he shows up. But every time God shows up, it's something unexpected. Verse 12 continues, and after the fire... A still, small voice. Now God shows up, and he shows up in a quiet voice. He shows up in a whisper. I'd say that's not even like the other times at all. I mean, I know the Bible is supposed to help us find God. But God's not showing up the same way twice in all these stories. Maybe it's trying to tell us that God shows up differently every time. Maybe God is just too creative to always do things the same way. I think that a lot whenever I, um, you know that old phrase we used to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Something to to ask ourselves whenever we're not sure what the right answer is. Well, I don't think that phrase helps me very much. Because as I read about Jesus in the Gospels, he's way too unpredictable. So for me to ask, what would Jesus do? I have no idea what Jesus would do most of the time. Because <laughs> the more I study him, the more I'm just, he blows my mind that I have no idea what he's up to. 
I have no idea what's going through his head. The way he answers questions is never the way I would answer questions because he always has some higher way, some better way to think about everything and some different way of doing things than I would ever do it. God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are higher than man's ways. I've never got much use out of WWJD. (laughs) Okay, one more, one more. um, And then I'll be done with my introduction and we can actually get into the lesson. (laughs) Daniel 7. Daniel has this vision. And in this vision, he sees God. So Daniel's another one of those guys that we could ask, what what does God look like? Well, it says in Daniel 7, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued, and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated... And the books were opened. That's what I'm talking about. When <laughs> the fire's back, okay? And God's not a cloud right here. God has a person-like image right here. He's got a garment on. He's got a head. He's got hair. He's sitting on a throne. This is maybe closer to the image a lot of us have in our heads when we try to think about what does God look like? Probably man-like because man's made in the image of God, but, but much larger, more powerful, probably lightning crackling all around him, okay? He's probably glowing. I mean, that's what Daniel's describing. That's what he saw. That's probably what we would expect to see if we were to meet God. But I would just want you to think if you're the average Jew, Jew at this time, and, and you're, you're at this time as in, in, in history, and you're wondering what God looks like, you're going to have all kinds of confusion about what God really looks like. Because God's a fire, God's a cloud, God's a burning bush, God's a smoking pot and a torch, God's a whisper. God is a man on the throne with white hair. He's so glorious. If you looked right at him, you'd be dead. And Moses, he was the most highly venerated man in all of Jewish thought. And he could only look at God's back. So if we take all of scripture into account, we ask ourselves the same question that I asked to you at the start. What does God look like? Well, there's an answer to that question. It comes in a part of your Bible called the New Testament. If you go to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. You know, I always thought it'd be cool to see an angel. Like, I always thought I would feel pretty special if one came out to me. But these shepherds, they were terrified. Now, why were they terrified? Well, I already told you. Everyone in the Bible is so scared of angels. They looked at the angels, like when they saw the angels, that's the last line of defense between the holiness of God and themselves. And if the angels are close, that means God is close. And if God is close, you better watch out. Verse 10, the angel said to them, God is close. (laughs) That's a paraphrase. He said, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. A fire, a cloud, 
a whisper, a furnace, a torch, a man on a throne, and a baby. How could the Lord, how could the God of the entire universe, the being who lives in eternity, the one who created everything, how could he be a baby? I think Tom Hanks is the bomb. Like, I could watch just about anything with Tom Hanks. It's just something about, I, I don't know, it's like his voice, the way he acts. It, it makes me laugh. It captivates me. I, I, I saw the $5 movie bin at Walmart a while back, and it had like it had the movie Sully in it and Captain Phillips. And I was like, Tom Hanks right there. I, I got to get those, like $5. I, I picked those up. I could tell you, I've watched interviews with Tom Hanks. I read facts and trivia about Tom Hanks. Um, I was... Uh, you know what? Here's something you might not know, because we mentioned Abraham Lincoln earlier. Tom Hanks is actually a descendant of Abraham Lincoln. Tom Hanks has type 2 diabetes. Tom Hanks has played a captain in five different movies. But just because I know many things about Tom Hanks, does that mean that I actually know Tom Hanks? Of course not. No matter how much I know about Tom Hanks, I couldn't actually say that I know Tom Hanks, right? Like, let me just ask you a question. At the very least, at the very minimum, if I wanted to say that I knew Tom Hanks, at a minimum, what would it take to say that I know Tom Hanks? What would that take at a minimum? If I wanted to be able to say that I know Tom Hanks, well, I'd say this. Perhaps if I had spoken to him, if I had personally spoken to Tom Hanks, perhaps then I could say, finally, that I know Tom Hanks. And why is that? Well, you can't say that you know someone if they've never even said a word to you, right? If they haven't even said a word to you, if you haven't said a word to them personally, how could you say that you know them? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I'll break in here. Who was the Word? Well, we know who the Word is. It's Jesus. Jesus is called the Word. God speaking to us. God making himself known to us. Now we can say that we know God, because he gave us his Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him... Nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. If we skip on down to John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does the Bible say that Jesus is the word? Because Jesus is God, making us able to say that we know him. God has broken into our world through Jesus. He's given us his word. Remember, that's what it would take at a minimum to say that you knew somebody is if they had spoken a word to you. And God wanted to know us, so he sent us his word. Now we can say that we know God. 
And that's why Christmas matters. Your word is the clearest representation of who you truly are. Like, I could observe my dog, Marty. I could make a lot of inferences about him. I know that he likes to sleep. I know he doesn't like to do much else. I know he gets angry whenever strangers knock on the door. I know he likes our toddler the best at our house because our toddler is the one who drops the most food whenever he eats. So that's where our dog, Marty, is always sitting whenever our kid's eating. I could, I, I could make a lot of inferences about Marty just by observation. But if I could literally talk to him back and forth, you know, like a person talks to another person, if I could do that with him, if he could speak, I'm sure he could tell me all kinds of things that I never knew about him before. Why is that? Because your word reveals what's going on inside that the other people can't see on the outside. Your word is the clearest representation of who you truly are. And Jesus is the word of God. And that's why Christmas matters. Guys, I've seen a lot of Tom Hanks movies. I believe with all my heart that Tom Hanks exists. But do I know Tom Hanks? No. And God says it's not enough to know about him. And he says it's not even enough to just believe that he exists. God says that we have to know him through receiving his word. You have to receive Jesus. And that's why Christmas matters. Your words show others how you truly feel. Like I could behave all day as if I love my wife, Emily. And by the way, that's important to do (laughs) whenever you're married to someone. You're supposed to behave as if you love them. But If you never say the words, I love you, then that relationship is going to feel kind of empty. You can show it all you want, and that's important. You should. But you also need to say it. You need to actually say the words every now and then, or else she's not going to be feeling it. Okay? Your words represent who you are, how you feel on the inside, the things that people can't know unless you speak them. Your word is the clearest representation of who you truly are. And Jesus is God's word to us. He's God's way of saying, I love you. And that's why Christmas matters. I remember back when my toddler, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, I remember back whenever he was about to start walking and and he was just getting close. You know, he'd have to pull himself up on the side of things. And it started with him standing And then he'd take a step and then he started taking two steps at a time before he'd fall down. And, and it was just amazing to see him learning these things that maybe come so easy to us now, but you know, at one point, every, every one of us had to learn how to walk. And if you think about it, that was true for Jesus. Jesus at one time, he was the same size as my baby. He had to learn to stand up on his feet. God had to learn how to walk. But when Jesus learned to walk, something happened for the first time ever since the Garden of Eden. God walked with man. God walked among us. And that's why Christmas matters. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Jesus is the reason for Christmas, 
Jesus is the reason that Christmas matters. 